0: a podcast where you will hear unfiltered, raw, honest, and uniquely funny interviews with artists you love as they talk about the art they love to make. I'm your host, Ilana Levine Little known fact about my guest today, he has held so many positions within the theater community for decades, including being the head of the American Theater Wing for many years. But most recently, this author, scholar... Uh, penned a book that deep dives into Thornton Wilder's play, Our Town. It's a really magnificent read, so fascinating and really reminds us how important that play is, how it focuses on what it is to be human and loss and what it is to be alive. And it was really thrilling to spend time with Howard Sherman today on the podcast. So, let's welcome Howard Sherman. Here we go. A O K. A O K. Hey everyone, my guest today is Howard Sherman. Howard is a theater administrator, writer, and advocate. Some of his many jobs in the theater world include his roles as executive director of the American Theater Wing and the Eugene O'Neill Theater Center, managing director of Jiva Theater, general manager of Goodspeed Musicals, and PR director at Hartford Stage. Since 2012, he has been the U.S. columnist and a feature writer for the stage newspaper in London, and in 2018, he was named contributing editor of Stage Directions magazine. His writing has appeared in many, many places, including Slate, The New York Times, The Guardian, and American Theatre magazine, but... Most recently, Howard wrote a book called Another Day's Begun, which is an incredible deep dive into the play Our Town. It's been published. It's out for you to purchase. We are going to talk about that and so many things on the podcast today. Welcome, Sir Howard Sherman.
1: It's very nice to be with you.
0: I'm so happy to have you. You are someone, and we're going to talk about your marvelous book, um, that seems like a passion project that actually happened and and was birthed into the world. You have had so many chapters in your life and your career in the theater. Um, and I just wanna talk a little bit about, because you have sort of had your hand in so many theater cookie jars, um, we are speaking in March of 2021, but we're literally on the one year anniversary of the Broadway shutdown, uh, the theater shutdown, the the world shutdown. Um, But for people like you and me, who really find the theater at the center of so much of what we do and what we love, can you just talk to me a little bit about how I find you today, a year into this thing?
1: I think if you'd asked me Couple of weeks ago, I might have been slightly less optimistic than I am today. I mean, we're we're speaking, as you say, it's it's we're talking on the twelfth of March. It's would the, it's the anniversary of the first day. Certainly, without Broadway theater, many of the regional theaters actually had closed the day earlier. But we're talking at a time when vaccines are getting out there. I have an appointment scheduled. We have 25% of the country has gotten its first shot, at least. The, the delivery of vaccines is ramping up. And we had a really encouraging talk last night, the, the first uh, public talk by President Biden. So I think that's somewhat buoying. It's tempered with concern. I think there's definitely places and people who want to rush the reopening i've long been a believer that we should not rush it we should do it at the point at which it's safe and reasonable because the last thing we want is another shutdown but but i think i think it's at least in sight the the finish line isn't necessarily quite in sight it's off in the distance maybe but but we're going to get there and I mean my god it's been so awful for so many people and and my heart goes out to them but the bottom line for me is is we have to make sure people don't die.
0: Of course. You know we hear we hear stories from productions opening all over the world where covid has you know made its mark in some places more and in some places less. I was here, I heard a panel, I can't remember if it's Japan, there's some company where they have so many casts, they cast for each show. Mm. Like, it's not even understudies. It's like multiple casts. And it's sort of, it's strange hearing them talk about it, like, well, if one cast gets sick, we just bring in the next cast. Wow. Yeah. Um, How do we... I mean, you're someone who ran the American Theater Wing. What an incredible thing. I mean, for those of you who don't know, the, the wing does so many things to bring theater education and opportunities into young people's lives um, and, and has its, its you know um, hand very much in the Tony Award Ceremony as well, such two different arms of this organization. Um, how do you as someone who is no longer in that position but obviously cares deeply about that organization and the community. How do you sit by and not go like, hey guys, I, I have some ideas or, or how do you, or, or are you part of conversations?
1: I'm not part of conversations. I, conversations I'm a part of now are mostly self-generated. A lot of them simply <laughs> on social media. Right. But in the time since I left the wing, which is almost 10 years ago now, I focused a lot on advocacy first around censorship in theater, then broadening that to overall artists' rights. Uh, Can
0: I ask what you mean by censorship in theater? That's a big... Well,
1: it, it really began with high school theater, high school shows that were suddenly getting shut down in the middle of rehearsals the night before performances began often over content concerns. Mm. The first case was in 2011, it was production of August Wilson's Joe Turner's Come and Gone at an arts magnet high school in Waterbury, Connecticut, Uh, a school with predominantly BIPOC students. And because August wrote the N-word in the play, the superintendent decided this should not ever be spoken. And because the play could not be edited, the superintendent shut it down. And while I am highly aware of the inflammatory nature of that word, it's a word I personally would not use myself, August Wilson was writing out of the black experience and to deny students of color the opportunity to speak August's words as he wrote them and to present them for their fellow students seemed to me something that needed deeper consideration. And so I spoke out, I was actually still at the wing when mm-hmm. when that began and the uh, Yale School of Drama, and Yale Rep also spoke out and ultimately it was reversed. The show went on and it was a very credible, actually middle school production of Joe Turner's Come and Gone, done with a lot of contextualization so that nobody coming in the door thought this was about glorifying that word or that that word should be used outside of the context of this story. But in that period, at that time, coming out of the mouths of these characters, it was appropriate and it did not allow the denial of certainly uh, the, the the singular major Black playwright of the latter half of the 20th century, if not the entire 20th century, um, let alone just a, I shouldn't have qualified it as a Black playwright. He really is just one of the major playwrights of the 20th century. So I did that and I thought it was sort of that was it. It was a one off. I wrote some blog posts about it. And what happened was I started to get contacted by teachers and in fact, by students or by parents in other cases where this was happening. And it developed totally on a volunteer basis as sort of a sideline because there, there are so many incidences of school theater censorship but they are all discreet. People think it happens only in their community and it usually only happens once. And what was needed was a knowledge base that people could draw on so that when this arose, they knew where they might get some help. And that's a bit of what I became. I wrote more about it. I wrote about other incidents. Some cases they were reversed, in some cases they were not. But I believe very, very strongly that at an educational level, we have to make sure that students have the opportunity to engage with challenging work. Not in any way dissing fun, and pleasure and enjoyment and laughter, that's all part of it, but we shouldn't segment off serious work given really what, especially at the high school level, students understand about the world. And it's 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 being a nanny state, it's being afraid. And so it's sort of fascinating because what, what began to happen was any time an article appeared anywhere in the U.S. about a high school, somebody would either send it to me or tag me on Facebook. And to the degree I was able, I, I helped them. I have to say I hadn't been as involved the past couple of years in that work only because I didn't have the bandwidth while I was writing the book. Right. But uh, when things reopen, I certainly hope that, I will be a resource once again, though I would rather hope that there's no censorship. And I should say this, this went beyond high schools, dealt with colleges, dealt with community theaters, dealt even with professional productions where this, this was happening. And because the whole issue of doing a show as it's written was part of it, that's where, where artists' rights, particularly playwrights' rights in that case is, is, You can't, just because you license a play, you can't change it to be what you want it to be. You can interpret it, but that text is the text. And somewhat famously, I wrote about a production of Hands on a Hard Body down in Texas, where they completely reorganized the script. And Amanda Green had actually gone down at their invitation to see it. And she was aghast. She, at intermission, she was calling her collaborators saying, did we put this song here? And it was a director who decided that because they kept changing things around in previews, he had the freedom to change things around and in his words, make it better. <laughs> I'm the only person he gave an interview to, he <laughs> never spoke publicly on the I- issue again. Right but but these things need to be brought forward because if they just happen in their local community, if they're one article, they come out and and the rights of artists to own their work, to protect their work, the rights of theater groups at every level to do the kind of work they want to do is important. That's not to say, especially at the school level, that absolutely anything goes. Of course, there's things that are, promote, that are appropriate within schools. And now we really have to reinvestigate some of these texts for what they really say today. And things that may have been acceptable when we were in high school may not be sending the right message anymore. And so I support rigorous interrogation in the educational system of what's being done and why and what it means today. But I am not in favor of shows that are shut down because of a couple of curse words, because of intimations of sex, not the portrayal of it, uh, of, of LGBTQ lives. That's something that still really riles some people up that, that is not a reason for shutting down shows that's, that's trying to deny the reality of our world and the reality of people. And in the case of the LGBTQ issue, as well as race, uh, by, by shutting these shows down, we then don't portray it. And we're sending really bad messages about the world of theater to the people who may be the next generation, not just of theater makers, but theater audiences. Mm. So it's its a, pa- you mentioned a passion project. That's my yeah. passion project that I fell into by accident.
0: Right, you know, it's so funny because when I read the most truncated version of your bio, because as I said, you've done a gazillion things in the theater space and beyond. It is really interesting to me that for the most part, when you were working at established theaters, you weren't working in the artistic director space because you no. have such a huge um, knowledge of not just theater, obviously from the business perspective, but, but plays. And, and I know even as a kid, you did play. So I'm curious how it is it that when you began being a grown-up and going to work in this space, it was always the managerial, general manager, non-artistic director side of things.
1: Well, let me parse that. First of all, I'm still not entirely sure I'm a grown-up, but thanks for saying so. <laughs> um, only
0: only in terms of the legal things that you're allowed to do. Not your <laughs>
1: that's strictly. true. That's yeah. true. Um, I loved theater. I started loving theater. I sort of loved theater before I ever saw much theater. I somehow found something appealing about it. And then when I started actually having the opportunity to see it and mostly taking myself to it, uh, I, I just knew I wanted to be part of that world. By the time I was in college, I didn't think I had what it take, took to be an actor. I would have loved to be an actor. I just don't think my talent lies there. I can learn lines really well, or I used to be able to, but but I don't think I, I have sort of the emotional openness that it would take to be, to be a good actor. So I contrived to simply want to be around them. And that's what being on the business side of things And it really began with my work study job in college, where I had to work 20 hours a week on campus. And I'm flipping through the booklet of opportunities, and one was the box office at the Annenberg Center in Philadelphia. That's how I started. And I went from that to doing PR, to doing general management, to being an executive director. It is first and foremost because I love theater. I love being around theater artists, I love learning from theater artists. And and I continue to do so. I mean, it's, it's weird for me to be on this side of the microphone because I, to a degree, have been more where you are. I had my own podcast. Some people say I did podcasting before it was cool yeah. because I, I did 325 episodes of a podcast called Downstage Center between 2004 and 2011 as part of my work at The Wing. And I'm just, I'm delighted to have sat in a room with those people. I'm delighted to have been able to share our conversations. And I think at the core of everything I've done, it's just been about being a conduit for people to find their way to theater. So whether that's PR or marketing, whether that's general management, whether that's running an organization, whether it's the Tony Awards, it's all ways of connecting people to theater. Right. And, and so Rather than
0: pivoting to directing from acting, which a lot of people do, you did not see yourself in that world.
1: I don't think I have the patience to be a director. Uh-huh. I don't think I could go in and, and work on the same piece of material day in and day out. And, and I don't think I'm patient enough to allow people to find their way into a text. But I learned enough, and I, I constantly credit, and it's true, I credit Mark Lamas, who's the artistic director of Hartford Stage, where I went to work in 1985 for eight years as his PR director. But Mark did not treat the administrative staff as separate or other. I was sitting in season planning meetings from the start. Mark wanted to know what I thought. He wanted to know what other people thought. And so... I wrote, I, I did a thank you in the back of, of Another Day's Begun, where I thanked Mark Lamis and the artists of Hartford Stage for the greatest unaccredited graduate degree in theater one could ask for, because that's what I feel it was. I knew I liked theater a lot, but it wasn't really until I got to work with Mark that I really got to see how it got made in a way that certainly hadn't happened in school theater hadn't happened in my my first couple of jobs.
0: So let's pivot because aside from running organizations um, and all the things you advocate for, uh, you have immersed yourself in the world of this play, Our Town, um, and then surrounded yourself and included their thoughts in the book with people who love it as much as you do, or, got to be in it. And, and so it's both, um, it, it's a really interesting, this book is really interesting because it's your take on things. There's history, there's dramaturgy, and then there are interviews uh, with many, many casts over the years who have been a part of this um, American tradition of the Thornton Wilder play called Our Town. So tell me why you called your book what you've called it? Tell me about the title. Things are hard to name. I still want to change my kids' names sometimes, and they're fourteen and seventeen. So, <laughs> tell you, how you decided this is what it's called.
1: Um, when I pitched it, I only had what was the subtitle: "Thornton Wilder's Our Town in the Twenty-First Century." And I, this is published within the academic division of Bloomberry. It's an imprint called Methuen Drama. And they were perfectly happy that hit all the SEO things for search engines and said exactly what the book was and the premise of the book. But I thought I need it to sound somewhat, more like a regular book, not an academic book, because I'm not an academic. I I don't even have a theater book. So I have no credentials to bring forward and, and and my editor understood from the beginning that I didn't. And I said, I'm not, not writing you an academic book. So where the title came from is very simple. It's, um, it came from our town. It's, it's a line just at, at the end of the first long monologue, which opens the play by the stage manager before we begin to see the first glimmers of, of life in Grover's Corners. And I thought of a couple of other quotes from the play. At one point, I I must confess, I thought about um, saints and poets, maybe, mm-hmm. which is which is an answer the stage manager gives to Emily in Act Three. But then I said, eh, too artsy, too religious. People may not may not get it. Another day's begun just seemed simple, evocative of the play, and and a clear homage to to Thornton Wilder. Yeah, that's that's where it came from
0: yeah so you know i I would say the plays that come to mind that sort of even non theater lovers might know in their lives it's like the crucible um, our town you know there's a few of them that um that remain sort of the bread and butter of of uh the american theater um I'm sure you can name hundreds more but Why this play for you, and so much so that you were willing to spend years of your life. Is this the first book you've written?
1: It is. I've never written a book before. I didn't know what I was doing.
0: So prolific in every other type of (laughs) writing. Okay, so you were like, this is the one.
1: Well, it was, I I always say, I wish I had a more romantic version of this story, but I have this tendency to tell the truth. (laughs) I was approached by an editor at Bethlehem who simply said, have you ever thought about writing a book? And my answer was yes, because I've thought about writing a book since I was a teenager. Right. But at that moment, I didn't know what I wanted to write about and I ended up having about seven weeks before a meeting with him to come up with ideas. And I things were popping into my head and then I went, hmm, hard town. I'd seen David Cromer's production twice. The second time wrecked me, devastated me emotionally. Uh, I had seen a production of Our Town at Sing Sing Correctional Facility, which was one of the most remarkable experiences I've ever had going to a theater in my life, not just because of the play, the production, but the, the entire experience. And so that came to mind. And then I thought, oh, I'm sure there's plenty of books on Our Town, but I'll take a look. Looked on Amazon, started Googling. I could not find any. I found a couple of books that were collections of academic essays, but not a book totally focused on our town by one author. And so I called the Thornton Wilder office and I said, am I wrong? Are there no books on our town other than these, these essay collections? I was told I wasn't wrong. So then it just seemed I had a good idea because this is believed to be one of the most widely produced plays in America from the get go. As soon as it was released, in the first 18 months, it was available to be licensed. There were 650 productions of Our Town. And this is the 1930s? It was 1938 on Broadway, and and it was released for licensing by the middle of 1939. It's just just extraordinary. And international as well. I mean, just extraordinary. And, And so there is, I mean, the fact that you called it a tradition is really interesting because... I I talk about it as sort of an interesting continuum mm-hmm. because as I talk to artists about it, whether it's people who I talked to for the book or people who I tell I'm writing the book, or was writing the book, or just if it comes up in conversation. And people always say the production that did it for them. It is very often the first production. In writing this book, because I included some British productions, because I was talking to young actors here in the U.S., I was amazed at how many people said they didn't know it at all. Our assumption that this is just the gospel that every American knows it's not, not true, but, but there is this phenomenon. So as I, you know, I talked to David Cromer and David Cromer talked about the 1977 television production. And I talked with uh i'm trying to remember i mean i've talked to several people who cited the lincoln center production that gregory mosher directed in 1988 with spalding gray as the stage manager and you know people who now cite the cromer production because that the first of those that was 2008 between 2008 and 2014 he was doing that so It is, it's not simply a tradition. I feel like it's a handed down experience. Um, I spoke with Jane Kaczmarek, who was in the Pasadena Playhouse Deaf West production. And I always started every interview with the same question. And then it went wherever it went. But I always said, what was your knowledge of our town before you were involved in this? And Jane said it was the first professional production she'd ever seen when she was a high school student in Milwaukee and saw it at the Milwaukee Rep. In, and, and she was completely knocked out by it, and she explains it much better than I do in the book, but she's always remembered the Emily that she saw. The Emily was Judith Light.
0: Oh my god i know in your book she talks about how she was so undone and didn't have a tissue and she tried like the playbill became the 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 best substitute for a handkerchief and we all know playbills are not the most absorbent
1: of material i, I think playbill needs to consider the 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 facial tissue version I or think... maybe just selling playbill facial tissues exactly
0: theory. that's a great by the way, let's put a pit in that because as we pivot during COVID to new ways of making money, I think the playbill tissue is a really good idea. Um, I think of you know as, as we think of like these plays, Death of a Salesman, just that we imagine everyone's heard of. I think that's interesting that Our Town isn't necessarily that. Tell me about in 1938 when it made its Broadway debut. What what was going on? Uh, What else was happening on Broadway at that time? What was the culture of of what was being produced?
1: I mean, there was a variety of of things, some of which we still know. One of the long-running hits at that time, and we have to remember that long-running in those days meant running a season or two. It did not mean running 20, 25, 30 years. Yeah. Our town only ran nine months, but...
0: But that was a hit.
1: That was a hit. That was a hit, won the Pulitzer Prize, national tours, made into a movie two years later,
0: wow.
1: radio versions. I mean, it was, it was an immediate success, and it only ran nine months. Nowadays, we think of a show that runs nine months. Well, it's long now for a play because most plays are these limited runs. Right. But so, so in a way, it now seems long for a play, but certainly in comparison with the musicals. The entire run of Our Town was contained within the run of You Can't Take It With You, for example. That was, and interestingly, Our Town and You Can't Take It With You are the only two plays to have been in the top six plays in high school theater every decade since 1940, right up to the present.
0: Wow.
1: Um, Which is a discussion unto itself Right. What else was running then? I mean, the night before our town opened, there was a play that most people don't know now called On Borrowed Time, which was also a play which <laughs> contemplated death. It actually had a character of death. And and the premise is that death is stopped from causing anyone to die. And not, oh, how wonderful, but it ultimately becomes there are people in pain who we need to let go. Mm. There are people whose time has come. And so I, I always think to myself, what must the theater critics have gone through? Because in those days, they all went on opening night. To have gone one night to see On Borrowed Time, and then the next night to see On Borrowed Time is in the framework of a conventional play, scenery, scenes, you know, very straightforward. And then they go to Our Town, which For the first two acts they probably thought they were seeing a variant and then act three just comes and and smacks you upside the head i i'm I'm endlessly amused that eleanor roosevelt who wrote a daily newspaper column in those days uh said she appreciated is this as, as first lady as first lady yeah yeah it was a syndicated column and, and she wrote about seeing Our Town and how she found she thought everybody was impressive, but she found it thoroughly depressing. So you've got the first lady sort of saying, mm, do you want to see this? And what's funny is Kate Smith, who, of course, became so well known for singing God Bless America, who also had a column, talked about what an amazing experience. Or maybe she did it on a radio show. What an amazing experience it was to to see Our Town and how much it meant to her. It was debated in its day. It didn't win the New York Drama Critics Circle Prize. It lost to another show that was new that season of Mice and Men by John Steinbeck. Same season. But it did win the Pulitzer. Wow. But but it was not, you know, it wasn't Hamilton in its day. It wasn't universal. Right. Various, but there were enough people who responded to it. And and it meant enough to enough people that it really launched book
0: He, at the time, I mean, Thornton Wilder was a novelist, a playwright, um, a teacher, a professor. I mean, he had, he did so many things. At the time that this play was produced, was this his first play or had he already had other plays?
1: It was his first full-length original play. I'm being very qualified. He'd written a number of one acts, some of which are done to this day, the long Christmas dinner (laughs) Uh, Pullman Car Hiawatha Uh, but in those days one acts were only done by little theaters Uh, they were not done on Broadway but those plays had started to be recognized and if you see those plays you can see the roots of Our Town in them, you can see absolutely how those plays fed into Our Town but Wilder already had the Pulitzer Prize for The Bridge at San Luis Rey and he he had done a few adaptations of classic plays. in fact, he had another play running on Broadway when our town opened, which was he had done a version of um uh a doll's house
0: huh so he that, Ruth,
1: that. that Ruth Gordon was in yep, and so so he was, I call him, I don't think it's an original term, I called him, he was a public intellectual. He was known and he was famous, certainly from the Pulitzer Prize, which which made him a wealthy man. And and so he, he this play was, I mean, he only wrote two full-length original plays. He wrote this, and he wrote The Skin of Our Teeth, four years later, and then... Actually, the the last full-length play, which was an adaptation that he wrote, was a play called, well, originally it was called, when it failed, The Merchant of Yonkers. It was then better known when he revised it as The Matchmaker. And even if people are going, I don't know those plays, what's he talking about? I'll tell you what The Matchmaker was adapted into. That's Hello, Dolly. That's Thornton Wilder. So the same guy who gave us the deep philosophical ponderings of our town and skin of our teeth also gave us Dolly Levi.
0: And who were his pals? Like what if he was at um, Sardi's uh, or maybe Orso, based on his bank account, who would be at his table?
1: I think his table was more in Europe than it was in New York, but F. Scott Fitzgerald, uh, his close friend, there's an entire book of their correspondence, they were such fast friends, was Gertrude Stein. So any of the major figures of arts and letters in, in that era seemed to know Thornton Wilder. And, you know, I want to be clear, I'm talking about Thornton Wilder. I made very clear at the start of this book, unlike most books that you would go to if you're interested in our town. This isn't a Wilder biography. I give a little history, but it's really cursory because scholars, experts have written really in detail yeah, exactly. about the life of Wilder. Yeah. I I when I talked about this my first idea of of how I was going to conceive the book, and it went through iterations, my first thought, well, there's all these wilder biographies. Should there be an Our Town biography? And then when I realized how big a deal that would be, I realized I had to narrow my focus because I'd never written a book before and I had to do something that was manageable. So that's how it came down to the 21st century and these oral histories of 13 productions. Because if you try to get your arms around every major and every minor and every interesting art town since 1938, you'll never finish.
0: So was David's uh, David Cromer's production, he also played the stage manager, he directed it. Um, Was that the first time you had seen the play or had you seen it as a kid?
1: I did not see it as a kid. I owned uh, the paperback uh, of the script, though I have no particular memory of reading it. The first time I remember distinctly seeing Our Town, I was in my 20s and in 1988, I saw Long Wharf production, 50th anniversary of Our Town. It was designated as the official 50th anniversary production because Thornton Wilder and his family lived just outside New Haven. And in fact, his sister was still alive and gave the designation to the long work. Now was the first time I saw it and, and I freely admit, I went, oh, now I've seen our town. Didn't blow me away, didn't grab me. It wasn't until I saw David's production and then the Sing Sing production about four years later, those are the two times I just wept copiously. Why? I think Our Town acts on us all based on the experiences we've had in life. And while by the time I saw Our Town, all of my grandparents had passed away, I'd had older great-aunts pass away, but I think the contemplation of mortality was not yet something that I had fully grappled with. When I saw David's production, which I saw twice, I tell the story the first time I saw it, I just admired the stagecraft and the rethinking and everything about it because I understood what, what, I, I don't even want to call it a reinvention. It was almost for a play that was done without scenery, David stripped it down more so that all you focused on were the words and the ideas. It was the second time I saw his production that I fell apart. And that's because a close friend of mine had passed away six or eight weeks earlier. Um, Actually a drama critic, Mike Koshwara from the AP, who I had spoken to every week for 25 years. Mm. And what happened was, is I watched the story of Emily coming to grips with her passing and then trying to go back. All I could think of was the loss of Mike. And then frankly, when I saw it at Sing Sing, I think there were two factors at Sing Sing. One was, I'd never been to a maximum security prison. There's a certain anxiety because it's all been built up by fiction. And I'm not saying it's an easy place to go in even as a visitor, but as the play went along, I relaxed and was able to just watch the play and not think about the guards and not think about the bars and not thinking about the gates and thinking about, I just began to think about the play and these men and their lives performing the play. Is
0: that an all-male production?
1: uh, They brought in three actresses who are trained to work in prison situations. They, they, uh, they gender reversed most of the roles but but Emily and the two moms were were played by women okay. and I actually started they did it without intermissions, and i started the tears started as the wedding began when I saw Cromer's production, it was act three. I was in tears even earlier, maybe part of it was release, mm. maybe. It was because I think it was a really interesting production. And it was because, although it had already been a year since my dad passed, I hadn't come to grips with it. I still really haven't come to, to come to grips with it. But I think that worked on me. Mm. So, I mean, I think what's so interesting about Our Town, you know, you mentioned other plays, other great plays. I think there's there's something different about Our Town, which is that, when we watch Death of a Salesman, when we watch Glass Menagerie, we are seeing major works that have themes and ideas and very human stories. And part of what goes on is that we empathize with the people on stage. And it may be in a proscenium, it may be in the round, it may be environmental, but it's, it's empathy.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Our town, because of the amount of time spent with the stage manager talking directly to us, We don't have empathy, we're experiencing it. We are part of the play. And what happens for me, and at least in some of the people I've spoken to is you do project, you take the losses you've experienced or the things maybe you haven't been appreciating as much. And what was so brilliant about Wilder did is he takes you to a place. It's less about what happens to Emily, in a way. And it's certainly not about what happens to the stage manager, the largest role in the play, because nothing happens to the stage manager. We don't know anything about the stage manager. The stage manager has no story but to be a storyteller. So I think what's unique about our town, and I think the reason it worked for, for this book is because it affects people. It affects the people watching it directly, and it affects the people as they're telling it every night
0: you know this is a question i probably should have asked 20 minutes ago but but can you describe for the few people who are listening to this episode because they just listen every week um, <laughs> but but they don't know anything about our town um what is our town about what what it's is about, the play it's about
1: the universe it's about mortality it's about how do we find meaning in our lives every day and it sounds like i'm being very flowery and i'm not actually giving you a plot but ultimately when you come to the climax of our town it tells you these things it tells you to realize life every every minute so that's not a secret and it's not a theme you have to work out it's it's very clear The way the play is constructed is that there is this figure who we're told is called the stage manager only because that's what it is in the cast list, it's not even called the stage manager in the play, who tells us about this town called Grover's Corners in New Hampshire. And we watch what seems a very simple story of two families that live next door to each other, one in the turn of the 20th century. The one family, the father is the town doctor, The other family, the father, is the editor of the local paper, which comes out twice a week. And the moms are stay-at-home moms, and each family has two children. And the older of the two children, boy and girl, fall in love and get married. Explaining the plot of Our Town, and I'm not going to talk about Act Three, because if you don't know Our Town, you need to come to that yourself, but... All I'll say is that as beautiful as the first two acts are, they are preparing you for what happens in the third act. Cause some people read or watch this play and think there's not much going on here. In fact, there is, there's a lot of stuff and there's even more the more you delve into it. So, so it's, it, it may seem simple, but it's entirely deceptive, but in plot, that's the plot of our town, but you constantly have this this person and i I try to stop saying guy now because even though it was originally played by a man, women have been playing the stage manager for some almost fifty years now um and there have been multiracial casts of our town, certainly when it's done in other countries, but in the u s again it some some fifty. Years there was a production in Los Angeles in 1968, which was completely multiracial production at the Inner City Cultural Center. Um, so you don't go to our town to get plot. You don't go to our town to get grand drama. It's not there. I think you walk away. I hope you walk away. I mean, obviously, everybody has their own reaction. Some people don't necessarily like the play and that's, that's fine. But I think when you experience it that I've experienced it, when other people talk about how they've experienced it, it can be really, really profound, even on multiple viewings. And it is open to multiple interpretations and multiple ways of doing it. And let's think, you know, how many plays, how many American plays prior to 1938 are regularly done outside of, say, you can't take it with you. There's a few Eugene O'Deal plays. You might see a revival say of Machinal by Sophie Treadwell, but for the most part, our town's where it all started. Glass Menagerie came later. All my sons came later. They're all in the wake of it. And those plays are all known for naturalism Mm -hmm. for the most part there's a certain dream quality remembrance quality to to glass menagerie there's a flashback flash forward uh aspect a cinematic aspect to to death of a salesman but in memory they really seem like realistic and if you take away from our town hopefully you're not just remembering the cute little romance that you've seen. Hopefully you're remembering the totality of the experience. And it's not, even though it's not a conventionally dramatic play, it has a climax, but I believe the climax happens in us when we see
0: it. um, How did writing this book change you?
1: How did it change me? I am the beneficiary of 110 plus people telling me how they looked at our town. I said earlier, I didn't segue into directing because I wasn't sure I had the patience to, to delve into a text every day. And so for all the things I may know about theater, all the things I've observed, all the things I've been privy to, I've not gone through a professional rehearsal experience myself as a performer, as a director, as a dramaturg. And so I am, what I think of the play, what I see in the play, what I know about the play is both a synthesis of what these 100 plus people told me and then what that provoked in me to think about the play. And I freely admit, part of the reason I did this book, it was not totally a labor of love. It was, I wanted to write a book. I had a good idea. I liked the play. Yeah, I love the play now. Mm. I like, you know, there's a danger when you start working on something for a period of time that you kind of get to the, you know, partway through it or the end of it and it's sort of gotten old for you. Yeah. At least you can get old. I mean, I, I want to read and talk about this play for the rest of my life, not to promote a book, but just because I think it's so interesting. There are other plays I want to talk about as, I love to talk about as well but I don't have the benefit of all of these insights. And what I hope the book does is, for people who've seen the play, I don't know that the book works all that well without knowing Artin. Without
0: context.
1: Yeah, you really need to, to understand what's going on because I, I, I just can't explain the play in any way that would be meaningful. Um, but I, I hope that it may prompt people either who've seen the play, who want to have more insight, or people who are going to do the play, And want to get a head start. I don't want this book to be prescriptive. I don't want anybody to read about these productions and go, oh, that's good. I'll do that. Mm -hmm. But maybe it will get them thinking and they can go even further. And especially again, I'll come back to students so that that young people can understand that there are many different ways to approach a text, even a text that seems so fixed. And and I'm going to come back actually to something you made a comment about how did, uh, how did people respond to it when it was new. When it was new, it was 1938. And the play takes place variously between 1899 and 1912 or 1913. It was 25 years earlier, 30 years earlier. It wasn't the distant past. So all of the scenes in Grover's Corners, yes, it was bygone days, but it wasn't antique. Mm -hmm. What's happened with productions now is that we are now a hundred years beyond those days and that era does seem antique. And what many productions have done so rewardingly is worked out ways to make sure the play can be seen anew or appreciated and not get caught up in antiquity mm-hmm. but made immediate and whether that's modern dress costumes whether that's different simple scenic effects than than what might have been there that's all all part of it and and so what was fortunately what was avant-garde and experimental on broadway by not being too specialized Actually, has managed to stay fresh and can be freshened up, whereas other avant-garde work was vitally important in its day, but now just may not read in the same way. I think our town can still work.
0: I think it would be pretty amazing after this pandemic, which keeps reinventing itself. I don't know. I don't know if we'll ever be completely in a time where we are post-pandemic. Um, I think we'll all adapt to what life looks like um, and things will open up and move forward, but I I don't know, I don't know. I don't know what the future looks like. But having a production of Our Town again in the near future, I think would be extraordinary for all of us collectively when we can safely be in a theater to have that journey together and have that release together. Um, For you, it was your friend who was a critic the last time you saw it, we are all reeling from so much loss, physical and just what life used to be. And this play just might be the absolute um, answer to some kind of collective community experience to go through it together and exp- and and have that.
1: Can I tell you two quick things? Yes. Um, first, Australia, as many people now know, has opened up post-pandemic.
0: And yeah, said- like 100%. Oh
1: but uh, the Queensland Theatre Company, which is one of the largest institutional theatre companies in Australia, it's based in Brisbane, went back into full capacity performance in January with our talent. I, I suspect that we're going to see a lot of our mm-hmm. And part of that, post-pandemic, and I think part of that is, and, and here I'll, I'll sort of give away a bit, of act three in that Emily has an experience where she is no longer able to experience the world as she did. In a way, and this was something that was really brought home by the men at Sing Sing, who are apart from the world. Now, most of us have all been apart from the world, partially or fully, limited or locked down. And we have come to realize in our everyday life the things we miss. And it's not necessarily the, the meals or, or the money or anything like that. It's each other. It can be nature. And that's what's at the root of our town. And I think we will all, once we are able to fully be, be out in the world again. The world is open to us all. We are all going to be what Thornton Wilder asked us to be and do. We are going to be realizing how much we missed things. And those may be very, very simple pleasures.
0: Yeah. Wow. Howard, it has been so joyous getting to spend this time with you and just talk about a play what a luxury to have this time with you i'm such an admirer of yours i i also we haven't even touched on your photography which is a whole other aspect of your life that you share you just seem to be everywhere so congrats on this book how lovely that during this um intermission in the theater. You have been able to put something so theater-based out into the world. So thank you for that. I wish you tremendous success with it. Um, before I let you go, tell me a little known fact about Howard Sherman.
1: I was a guest judge on an episode of Cupcake Wars.
0: <laughs> okay, that's, you win. You win. I mean, what, what, else, what else is there to know? Nothing.
1: It's not possibly the least known fact about me because it was on television sure but but it was a trip it was a real trip it was one of my only two national television experiences um and i'm not an actor i'm not a performer right
0: but you are apparently a cupcake expert expert which is which is i I am not not a
1: cupcake expert but I, i played one on tv before i lost weight okay and i i also my only other national tv experience is I was the head juror on an episode of SVU, delivering an unjust verdict. There are other people on the episode. Deirdre O'Connell, who I had first met at the Westport Country Playhouse in 1984 when she played Agnes in Agnes of God, and uh, Kevin Gere, who I first met uh, when I was running the O'Neill Center, and Rebecca Luker, who was on it, who I knew from my time at, the theater wing. And what was great about the three of them, all of who were completely confused to see me there, was that they then felt like, oh, we're going to show you how this works.
0: Oh, they took care because of you. If, not,
1: if I'd just been there with a bunch of actors who actually thought I knew what I was doing,
0: yeah,
1: it would have been lonely. It would have been weird. It would have been scary. I, I had three godparents walking me through and, and what nicer, Sweeter people and sadly of course both Rebecca and Kevin are no longer with us. Crazy. But
0: well uh, I will um I'll look for the episode, I'll get your book, uh just like everyone else who's listening should do. And um I can't wait until we can go see a play together. That would be a thrill.
1: We will do that.
0: All right, thank you, Howard Sherman, so much for being on the show today.
1: Thank you a lot.
0: A-OK. Hey guys, one more thing. Have you been considering contributing to the podcast? Well, I, for one, would be so grateful if you enjoyed this episode or all the hundreds of episodes I've made in the past and all the episodes that are coming to you in the future and want to donate a little something, just head over to littleknownfactspodcast.com slash donations. It couldn't be easier to do. No donation, too small. Every donation just filled with gratitude from me. Thank you so much. Have a great day. Until next week. Clouds can make the wind blow. Bugs can make the grass grow. So, there you go. These are Little Known Facts that now, you know. The episode was edited by Nicholas Klar. We recorded in New York City. And the Little Known Facts theme song was written and recorded by Georgia Famosa with backups by Caleb Famusa.